0: And now your host, entrepreneur, real estate investor, and apartment deal syndicator,
1: Jacob Ayers. Hi, and welcome to the Real Estate Way to Wealth and Freedom podcast. Welcome back. I'm your host, Jacob Ayers. I'm really excited for today's topic that is creative seller financing. Now, this is one of my favorite topics to discuss, and when you're talking about this, there is possibly no one better that knows the subject than today's guest, Bill Ham. He's a commercial airline pilot turned real estate investor, got his start buying a duplex and has scaled and grown his portfolio. He bought his first 400 units without ever stepping foot in the bank. He's an author of Creative Cash. Welcome to the show, Bill Ham. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. Thanks so much, Bill. Tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do, how you got your start in this real estate world. Yeah. appreciate it. Well, besides
2: the great intro, I think you covered most of it. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. I've been in the business about 16 years now. So I was a pilot by trade, flying airplanes, and walked away from the aviation career in 2005. My very first deal was a duplex. I'd saved up about $10,000. It was cash flowing about 300 bucks a month. and I said, you know what? I'm smarter than uh, the average bear. So I quit. (laughs) I walked away from aviation and just went into real estate. Found out very quickly. I was not smart as I thought I was, but did survive it. Did make some money, did lose some money, learned a lot. And still here 16 years later, I've built a management company. I've had a portfolio of over a thousand units. As you mentioned, the first 400 units, I was able to complete with some form of creative financing. It was either lease options, seller financing credit cards, uh, you know, line of credit, you name it. I, I wound up doing it early on and then ultimately started getting into larger commercial assets. And now I am largely a syndicator. So I syndicate most of my deals, bringing in um, you know limited partners and putting deals together. So that's pretty much how I got here.
1: I want to get into all the creative seller financing methods and, and your background there, but first sure. kind of talk about the mindset of leaving that high paying W-2 career that you spent I'm sure years and years of studying to be a pilot and becoming a pilot and building your career, and you decide to walk away from that, quote unquote, and become a real estate
2: investor? Yeah, I hear you. You know, the mindset, that's an interesting question. What I figured out was that I was relatively lazy and relatively ADD, which is probably (laughs) relatively normal for most people, right? And so what I had to figure out was a way to sort of force myself to get out of the comfort zone. And so I spent about a year studying, reading books, just doing your normal stuff, gathering information, and then ultimately closed that very first deal, which was a duplex. And the mindset that I realized was going on was that every time something would be a little bit risky, maybe a little bit work or maybe a little nervous or taking action, I would always run back to the job, right? So I realized I had to figure out what was this bridge that I was crossing back into the safe zone every time things got, made me uncomfortable. And so I figured out it was job. And so I had to burn that bridge, let that shine the way forward. So that's kind of the lesson that I took away from that, that I might share with other people is there's something that you're always going back to that some sort of comfort zone. You got to figure out what it is. You got to figure out what your path back to it is and destroy the path. You know, You don't want to go all the way out into what I call your shock zone, which is kind of like some kind of crash diet or crazy exercise program, New Year's resolution we never keep you don't want to go all the way out there like that, but you got to figure out what the comfort zone is. You got to stay out of that. So somewhere between your comfort zone and your shock zone is where you got to live. I love it.
1: So you buy this first duplex while you're still working full-time airline pilot, you save up $10,000 It's cash flowing $300 a month. That's a pretty good deal. You're probably thinking, Hey, this real estate thing is pretty awesome. I'm going to do this thing again. Right? Right.
3: Yeah.
1: But you've saved up all your cash and you've invested it. So you've got to figure out how to either wait until you save up another 10 grand or you got to get creative.
2: That was it. I had no money, no credibility, no experience. Didn't know what in the heck I was doing. Did not come from a family of real estate or business people. My family were in positions largely. So I did not come with any kind of background for any of this. And what I discovered is really the core concept in the book, Creative Cash. And it's the one thing that I want everybody listening to take away, and it's that you need to create value for the seller. You need to be a problem solver. And if you can learn the art of problem solving, it unlocks most doors. So all the problems I had, no money, no credibility, no experience, none of this kind of stuff. Oh, by the way, I was also in Macon, Georgia, which is about an hour and a half south of Atlanta. In 2008, that city was listed as the number eight most impoverished city in America. So a very difficult market, 100-year recession, you know, all these different things going against me. But I solved all those problems by creating value for sellers by solving seller problems. And that's really the core of that book is how to go out and get deals by being creative and using that creativity to solve problems. And so that's how I got started, really. That's the real answer is I just got out there and made it up. Whatever the it. seller needed done, you know, I got in there and did it. Figured it out, made it up, created an offer that helped me, helped them, and that's all. And I there are no rules, problem. no boundaries, no limits
1: to how creative you can be. Right? There's no bank or lender or rule book or title company or whatever telling you that you can't do X, Y, or Z. It's just right. As far right. as no, you're doing no illegal, you can do it's it. wide
2: open, isn't it? You know, yeah. I mean, yeah. There's really no rules to any of that. There are some tricks and techniques we can certainly use, but every situation is different. Every deal is different. Every seller is different. And it's not a one-size-fits-all scenario. You've got to be able to analyze each scenario, the deal, the person, the market, the neighborhood, all of it, and create a problem-solving offer.
1: If you're going to solve a problem, you have to first be able to identify that problem, right? So, what are Correct. some problems that you can see right off the bat that you're like, "Hey, I know how to solve that problem," or this is another Ooh, that's problem. How long do you have? You got a day or two? <laughs>
2: worth of? Okay. All the problems I go through. Um, yeah, my favorite. We'll start my favorite: burned-out landlord. Just someone who the real estate itself is not necessarily in bad shape or in a bad area. It's a personal problem with the seller. They're tired. They, they don't want to manage. They thought they were smarter than the average bear and found out they were wrong. You know, a lot of professionals, white collar professionals, find themselves in this situation. They think, oh, property management, that's easy. I can go out and buy this 10-unit, 20-unit. I'll manage it myself, no problem. And they realize being a landlord is a lot more time-consuming than they realized, and now they're getting burned out, and they just don't want to deal with this thing anymore. That's my favorite problem to solve because that means the real estate's in good shape. It's just a personal issue. The seller, lease option, master lease option, great scenario for that one. My second favorite would be the seller has probably run out of money. They wanted to renovate the property or the property has fallen into disrepair. And for whatever reason, this seller doesn't have enough cash to go in and finish the repairs or finish out the business model. That's also a really good one. You can get into those deals for a little bit of uh, renovation money sometimes, seller financing, things of that nature. So there's tons and tons and tons. One, and I'll, I'll give you a future one that's coming and that it's not here right now. Okay. Getting out of agency debt. Fannie and Freddie loans. Now, this is something that I have found in the commercial multifamily space. The majority of people over the last two or three years, in my opinion, they went out and got agency debt. Fannie and Freddie are not as versed in one little word as they should be, defeasant. It's a fancy way of saying prepayment penalty. Those agency loans, they're low interest rate, and that's great, and they're long-term, and they're fixed, and all these attractive aspects to them, but people don't realize they come with a really big prepayment penalty. And so I've seen a lot of people get into deals that I don't think they quite understood when they got in. The market was great. Everybody was doing it. And they kind of rushed into some of these deals. And now they're in a loan they can't get out of. If that property has a little distress to it, maybe the tenants uh, aren't paying COVID. You know, we've seen that, you know, certain things of that nature. They're not going to be able to get out of a loan. You can assume the mortgage, but people tend to offer a discount when they have to assume someone else's mortgage. So that's kind of one of the areas I'm predicting that we're going to see a lot of creativity and you're going to be able to come in and do a master lease options and things like that with people who have debt they can't exit. So that's a, that's something you want to watch.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. Something to think about there. And then possibly, you know, maybe they had these loans three or four or five years ago originated then in when interest rates were a little higher than they are now, right? So
2: yeah. exactly. That's, so that's even assuming the mortgage isn't attractive because you could go get new debt today at a lower interest rate than assuming this mortgage would be. And that's where I plus maybe disrepair to the property. Those are areas that I think are going to be rife for opportunity with creative financing. So I would tell everybody here: is if you're looking at a deal and they've got long-term debt on it, keep an eye on that deal. They may find themselves in a situation become motivated.
1: Do you think that's going to be a quote unquote transitory issue,
2: or is that going to be a bit of a longer-term issue? Like maybe I mean, everything is transitory. Everything is market cycles. So that's something else I teach and I talk about in the book is market cycles. Understanding the rise and the fall of each market cycle. So nothing is forever. Everything shifts and changes. And that's one thing you got to really pay attention to as an entrepreneur, forget real estate, forget being an investor. As a business owner, you've got to pay attention to the market cycles and to the future of the market and what's going on so that you can adjust your strategies. So you don't make money when everybody makes money and then turn around and lose it when the market's not up. If you only make money when the market's good you're not going to last but maybe six, seven years in the business because then you're going to have a shift in the market and you're going to keep doing the exact same thing, not change your strategy. All of a sudden, it doesn't work and you wind up losing most of what you made. I have had it happen to me and seen it happen to a lot of people. So you got to learn how to change your strategies along with the market cycle. Bill, to someone who's
1: never heard the term creative seller financing, it might sound a little mysterious, a little mystique.
2: What's it mean to you? Well, it's just a way of wrapping up all creative financing in one sort of term, CSF, right? Creative and, seller finan- creative and seller financing is maybe the way we could say that, right? But it's just a term that I kind of created to generalize all creative financing. So it could be a match lease option, seller financing, so sort of equity position, you know, buying out someone else's equity. There's tons and tons of ways to do it. Give us an example of
1: how you maybe implemented creative financing early on in one of those, maybe first of the
2: several deals you bought without ever stepping foot in the bank. The very first deal I ever did, that duplex? 100% seller financing. Okay. yeah, awesome. from a friend, actually. Now I got lucky. So I'm not saying that going out and getting 100% seller financing is something that's going to occur very often. It's not. I, it was a friend of mine. I was lucky. He gave me financing for enough time, the seasoning period, which means how long you have to own a property before you can refinance at the bank and refinance off of the new appraisal not the original purchase price, yeah, right. the seasoning period. Now, back in the old days of real estate, back in 2005, that seasoning period could be as low as say 90 to 180 days okay. um, from purchase to refinance. Today, it's typically about a year to maybe 18 months before you can refinance and the bank ignores the original purchase. That kind of is so de- bank dependent, right? It is. It's lender and bank dependent. There's no law there. I'm just saying rule of thumb, you should not be expecting to refinance something in 90 days and pull all your money out. It's probably going to be a year to 18 months. Back then, I was able to refinance within 90 days. And so all I had to do, there was nothing to pull out. All I had to do was refinance and pay off the seller financing. And I was able to do that. And uh, yeah, that's my very first deal. There was seller financing after that and some other deals, lease options. I started doing master lease options. Which Explain really a master lease property. option, if you will. Yeah. it's There's no difference between a lease option and a master lease option, except number of units. So if anybody's in single family or you've heard of a rent to own lease option. It's the same thing, except when we're talking about multiple units, we just call it master lease option. That's the only difference. Okay. What it is, is a rent to own. So Jacob, I'll use you an example. Let's say you have a property for sale and for some reason you're a burned out landlord. You just don't want to deal with it anymore. It's um, hundred units, you know? And I come in and I say, okay, Jacob, I'll take over with a master lease option. It's two separate contracts, all right? The master lease allows me to rent the property from you, with the right to sublet to the tenants. All right, so I just rented your 100 unit apartment complex. I'm now renting it out to the tenants. That makes me the operator, the manager. I'm now in control of the property. I'm also in control of the cash flow. Second document is our option to purchase. You and I are going to come up with a price today based on the market and the property value today. All right, once we agree to that price, we'll just say million bucks for conversation's sake. You and I have agreed this property is going to sell for a million dollars. All right, now I have the option to buy that property for one million dollars. For X amount of time. And we would obviously agree on how long this time is. Typically, one to three years, something like that's pretty normal. So, you know, let's just say that you and I have agreed to buy, I can buy the property for today in the next three years for $1 million. Under the lease, what I want to do is to be able to go in there and straighten out the operations, do whatever it was you didn't or couldn't do operationally. Now I've got the property up and running. It's doing much better. It's cash flowing. The value, hopefully, has gone over. The one million dollar option price. So now let's say the property's worth two million dollars. I still have the right to buy it from you at one million dollars. So that's roughly what a master lease option is. One thing you got to pay attention to here is that, or two things really. You're a renter, not an owner. So as a renter, there is no refinance out of a master lease option. So don't think, hey, I'll get Jacob's property under contract for a million bucks and then it'll be worth $2 million, and I'll go borrow 80% of $2 million and refinance and pull all this money out. No, that's not how a match lease option works. You still have to buy the property. So when I exercise my option to purchase, I'm actually buying the property. So I am buying a property that's worth $2 bucks for $1 bucks, but I am still going to have to put down 20% on that million. So that's roughly how a lease option works. Now, if you want to do a refinance, that would be seller financing. That's different.
1: Yeah, right. In some states, they call things a little bit differently. Sometimes in like different regions, that's you hear it rent to own, you hear it lease option. Yeah, so it's just all those kind of terms wrapped into
2: one. Yeah, and as cases, long as you're business to business, LLC to LLC, if you're an investor, there's really not many laws around this. When you start doing stuff like this for a home owner, that's where you can get into legality. You, I don't know the law, and I don't want to quote the law, but I think you can only do several before you become considered a lender. So, pay attention if you're doing sort of lease to own to end users. I believe there's some law there you want to kind of pay attention to. Business to business, it's pretty wide open.
1: Bill, I want to read an excerpt from your book and and get your opinion on it. It's just real short. I think it's very first sentence in the introduction. It says, I can tell you everything you need to know in order to build a successful real estate business in one sentence. Here it is. Know the values of the assets in your market and analyze more deals than anyone else. I absolutely love that. Can you kind of
2: expand on it? Yeah, that's it. I mean, you know, you stop and think about it, everything that anyone can ever tell you about real estate falls under that sentence. Know what stuff's worth, outpace the competition. That's (laughs) it. You know, if you don't know the values in your area, how are you going to know if something's a good deal or not? You know, there's an old saying, money is made when the value is known, money is lost when the value is unknown. Exactly. Now, I didn't make that up, but, you know, point (laughs) being is like, if you don't know what something's worth, you won't be able to tell if it's a good deal or not. If you do know the values in your area, you will instantly be able to identify an asset selling for less than the market. And you'll be able to say, hey, that's it. That, you know, everything else sells at this and it's worth this. And this individual, for whatever reason, is selling it at this. That's a great price. Now that we have that skill set and we know our values in the market, all we got to do is just rinse and repeat faster than anybody else. Just look at more deals than the next person and you win. It's very simple, but that's everything anybody can ever tell you about real estate fits under one of those two things. You know what things are worth? Work harder than your competition.
1: When you're analyzing these deals and looking at the market and you're trying to figure out where are prime and ripe opportunities to implement creative financing, you kind of mentioned a few typical problems from the seller's end. How about from the property end? Are these going to be more distressed properties? Are these your class A high-rise apartment buildings? Or, you know, what are the kind of prime opportunities you've seen right, right for right for this? Typically.
2: All right. Well, so let's go this route. First off, it, it has to do with the seller. Like I tell people, a good deal is 90% seller, 10% real estate. You can have the best deal in the whole wide world, real estate wise. And if the seller's not willing to do business, you've got nothing, right? So it's really starts with that seller. So creative financing is going to come in when a seller has a need that you can, can solve or has a problem that you can solve with a creative offer. All right. So we got to start and say, why would a seller have problems? Usually it's the property. I would say 30, 40% of the time, maybe it's on a personal level. As I said earlier, they're a burned out landlord. They're tired. They don't want to deal with it. They need maybe money or cash flow or who knows whatever. So sometimes it's the seller, but I would say a good 60, 70% of the time, the seller's problems are based on the property. Yeah. Or the
1: property reflects the problem, right?
2: Right. The property is the problem. Yeah. Usually, you know, like sometimes it can be personal, but yeah, usually it stems from the property. Aging asset is one. As the property gets older and there's capital expense needs, maybe the seller, what I find a lot of times, has sort of over-leveraged. They bought high. It's an older building. They really didn't calculate the expenses that are come the capital expense needs coming. And they've collected all the cash flow, but they've ignored the infrastructure of the property. And so now there's $100,000, $200,000 worth of work that needs to be done on this property, and there's no money laying around to do it. The property cash flows, But not 200 grand a month, you know, and all of a sudden you've got a big plumbing problem, a big roof problem. The city has said, Hey, you need to fix XYZ, you know, so those things can be very motivating for a seller. And then that's a great place to step in and say, Hey, you know, I have the money you need to do these repairs. I'll stop you from going into foreclosure. I'll stop you from getting in trouble with the city in exchange for fill in the blank. Now, after reading your book,
1: Bill, there was something a little eye-opening to me. And that was when I think of creative financing, seller financing, I usually think of those deals more applicable to single family, even very small multifamily, right? Your distressed landlord, your tired landlord, it's the house on the wrong side of the tracks with the tall grass, right? But you've actually done large multifamily deals
2: with creative financing. So maybe tell us about Absolutely. one of those larger deals.
3: Yeah. Yeah. The largest
2: match lease option I did was 108 units. I talk about that in the book. The largest seller financing I did was 152 units, where the seller actually had a little mortgage on the property. And I went out and did a full syndication. So I had a partner in that deal. We went out and we raised 20% down payment from limited partners. We were the general partners. And we took the investor's money, that 20% down payment allowed the seller to pay off their primary debt and therefore turn on an issue financing to us. So my first large seller financing deal, 152 units, and we had seller financing for two years with 20% down. Um, after that two years, we were able to refinance into a Fannie Mae loan, a long-term 10-year Fannie Mae loan, and been cash flowing ever since. And interesting is as we're doing this recording, I am literally awaiting on the closing for that property. We're selling it, I've owned it for almost 10 years. Again, first two years of seller financing was an excellent deal. And now we're exiting and at a very profitable level. I'll say that <laughs> now almost 10 years later. So yeah, really cool. uh, done a lot of big deals, a lot of large stuff. Yeah, don't think that size of the property has anything to do with it. It absolutely does not. It doesn't matter if it's houses. It doesn't matter what kind of real estate. It doesn't matter if it's storage or hotels or apartments or whatever. It's creativity and using creativity to create value. That's it. You can do this with anything. It can be cars. It can be rocket ships. It doesn't matter. It's nothing to do with real estate. It's business. And that's what creative financing is for. But let me point something out. Creative financing isn't a... What I don't want anybody to think is that this is a one-stop shop, lease option deals. I want to go out and only do seller financing deals. No, 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 no. That's not how this works. Creative financing is just meant to increase probability. That's it. You know, If you're analyzing deals and you come across a deal and you can... Go get a loan from the bank and put down 20, 25% and get a loan and buy the property. You should. It's when you analyze the deal and that scenario doesn't work. Property won't qualify for the loan or it's distressed or whatever the case. That's when you come in with creative financing. So it's just a way to increase the probability. It's extra tools in the toolbox. It's oh, not I was just going to say that. <laughs> tool in the toolbox. That's where I see a lot of people get, wrong, get off track with that. And they go around seeking out lease options or seeking out seller financing. And the problem with doing that it comes off as you can't close. It comes off as you don't have any money. It comes off as you may be broke. And so if you're dealing with a savvy seller or a realtor, that may be a turnoff. So you don't ever want to go out and, and start asking for seller financing or asking for lease options. You only offer it when you realize it's the solution to a problem. So how do you creatively
1: propose seller financing, let's say, without trying to come off like inexperienced or you're broke or whatever?
2: Yeah, good question. What you want to do? I tell this story occasionally, and listeners, you may have heard this one. But this is what I call the ugly baby syndrome. All right, everyone thinks everybody that has a kid thinks their kids, heard, <laughs> right? Everyone loves their baby. Everyone thinks their children's cutest in the world. But there's some ugly people in the world. <laughs> Somebody was wrong, right? Somebody somewhere was wrong about their kid. Just saying. So I'm sure it's not your child if you're listening. But point me. So. This is what I call the ugly baby syndrome, right? You have a seller who has a problem, but they don't know it. And you've got to educate the seller that their kid is not as cute as they think. Because what I've also found is that every seller thinks their real estate is the best real estate in the world. And that's why I'm making the analogy here is that the sellers all believe their real estate's the best. And that's why they want the highest price. And it's amazing. But we all know there's some junk real estate out there. We all know there's some distressed assets, kind of like, the ugly babies, right? (laughs) So your job is to go in, make the seller understand they have a problem, but it's not your problem. See, now there's the key. If I go to you as a seller and I'm basically coming off as I have no money, I have no experience and I'm broke, then I'm not really creating a problem solving offer. I'm asking for a favor that we do not want to do. So I've got to sit down and say, okay, Jacob, your deal, uh, you know, I love you. It's great, you know. I love the property, love the price, but you know what? Your income isn't quite good enough for that price. I think it is, but you know what? The bank over here, this evil bank, I always play that good cop, bad cop. Yeah, yeah. Bank. I always blame the lender. You know, I'd love to buy the property for this price, but dang lender, man, they said that the debt service ratio has to be one point two or one point uh, two five. Yeah. And gosh, I look at your deal and it's one point one. You know, that's so. What do I do? How do I fix it? See what I'm doing here? I'm telling you, hey, you got a problem. Your kid's not as cute as you think, but I'm not doing it in an offensive way. And I'm not doing it in a way that makes me seem like I'm the problem. you know. So I'm saying, all right, so since this property won't qualify for a loan, by the way, that's not a me problem. That's an every buyer that walks in the door problem. Mm-hmm. The property's income is too low to the purchase price. Hey, I got an idea. What if we did, there's your offer? MASH lease options, seller financing, whatever you think fixes that seller's interest or problems right there is then when you bring it in. I can give you a shortcut. If they have a mortgage, can't do seller financing. You can't give interest you don't have. So if people do it, and then what they call a subject to or a wrap, and that I don't like those deals, but that's basically where you just make the bank payment for the seller and we just don't tell the bank. I don't think that's a good idea. I think when the seller has a, an underlying mortgage, you do a master lease option, but at the same time, you get permission from the lender to do it so that you don't violate any loan. But if the seller has 100% equity, no mortgage, then do a lease option, do seller financing. So, seller financing is always a stronger position, but that's kind of roughly how you have to start making those offers. It's what I call the spy technique, you know, and, and this is in the book, and it's seller property you, S P Y. That's an acronym, and I created that acronym to remind us that we start with the analysis by looking at what the seller wants, what's the seller's problems. You know, am I saw sol- does this offer solve for the seller? Okay, next we look at the property. Okay, is my offer fixing the issues with the property? Lastly, is this offer good for me? Does it solve my problem? What I realized by teaching this for over ten years now since the last recession, what I have found is that people that are typically unsuccessful with creative financing. It's because they're reversing that that model. They're thinking me, me, me. What's good for me? Does this offer? I have no money. I have no experience. Is this good for me? Oh yeah. Let me look at the property, and then it's almost like an afterthought, the seller. And so that's why you got to go seller property you in that order, and yeah, you increase
3: I, your offer.
1: I think in that order, right? You have to really prioritize relationships, and it's not so much the numbers at that point. It's not so much where's the deal at or what are the numbers on it. It's like. First off, let's dig into the kind of interpersonal relationship of that seller. You got to kind of get to know that person, right? That's a hard thing to do from a shotgun approach where you've got to talk to 100 sellers to make offers on 50 to buy one, right? Yeah. I didn't
3: say it was easy. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and what I have found is typically when you're just using traditional financing, you will close about one in 80 deals that you analyze. You know, I mean, 80 deals that hit your desk. You go through the numbers, you crunch the deal. About one of those, you're going to get all the way through the loan, all the way through the process with traditional financing. When you add in creative financing, you might be bringing that number up to five or seven out of eight. You know what I'm saying? So it's not like we're every deal is a good deal all of a sudden. That's not how this works. It's just increasing the probability. Remember, just because you can get creative financing doesn't mean you should. There are a lot of properties out there that are simply bad deals. They're in bad neighborhoods. They're distressed. They've got infrastructure problems. You know, who knows? In in a terrible example, but look at this property that collapsed in Miami. There was no seller financing or lease option that would have ever been a good idea on something that was literally about to fall down and kill everyone. So be careful about the deal. Don't let creative or seller financing get you into a deal you shouldn't be in. So be careful with that. It still has to be a good deal. Don't force anything. Yeah.
1: Really good points there. Like you said, like, you know, it could be the worst property in the world or the best property in the world. And if you don't approach it the right way, then it's not going to happen. Yeah. Right. So yeah. let's talk creative about it makes a, a good deal better. It does not make bad deals, good deals. So be careful with that. <laughs> there you go. Let's talk about advantages from both the buyer and the seller real quickly. Let's start with the buyer. Why? I think it's pretty obvious. Like the first thing that comes to mind is low or no down payment, right? That's a pretty big advantage possibly in using creative financing, but there's others. Talk about from the buyer side, why it might be advantageous to implement a strategy.
2: Yeah. Tax uh, hit number one. So specifically with seller financing, if they have full equity in the deal and they're going to sell, they're going to take a large capital gains hit on the sale. So this is a way that they could create a mortgage, an annuity basically, and generate a stream of revenue for themselves. So if a seller really doesn't have a great need for the chunk of liquidity that will come from the sale, but they do have a need for the revenue stream that uh, equity created, then seller financing is a great one because they can continue to have a revenue stream and only pay taxes on the gains or the interest without losing a big chunk or having to redeploy all of that capital. As funny as it sounds, having money can actually be a problem. That's a rich person's problem, I'll be the first to admit. But when someone is all sells a property and they're handed millions of dollars, they got to do something with it. Yeah. And just sticking them in a checking account is not a great thing to do with a whole lot of cash. It's not really earning any money. So when a seller sells, they typically now have the problem of redeploying that capital. And if that is the number one reason that a lot of times sellers won't sell. They say, sure, if I sell this to you, what am I going to do with the money? I can't turn around and buy anything else. And so... This is a solution to that argument. It's like, hey, you don't actually have to sell and redeploy the capital. You'll just create this. That's one answer. Number two, then that's something they can also leave to family members. You know, a lot of people like to talk about legacy wealth and leaving family members, you know, real estate and portfolio and, and all these sorts of things. But what I've found is that doesn't actually work as well as you might think. Your kids might not necessarily want to be landlords. You did, but maybe they don't. Maybe they're not in business. Maybe they're not cut out for that, you know. And so, in a lot of cases, it's easier to sort of leave revenue stream to someone than the actual property that has to be dealt with and managed Hmm. tenants and so forth and so on. So those are all reasons that you might want to do it. Tax avoidance, again, burned out, uh, don't want to deal with it anymore. They don't have enough cash to actually do the repairs. That's one tip there. If you can go get seller financing, what I love to do is to try and swap out down payment money with repair money. Yeah. Right? So if Jacob, you got a deal and you say, hey, it's a million bucks and I need $200,000 down. And I go over there and find $100,000 worth of work to do on the property. I'm going to come back to you and say, hey, listen, I'll give you $100,000 down and I'll do $100,000 worth of work to your property. Worst case scenario, you take the property back. Hey, look, it's in better shape. Well, that's kind of a way that I like to, to limit the amount of capital. I don't want to have to put down 200 grand with you and then go find another 100 grand to fix up your property that's getting heavy. So, I always try and swap out repair costs with down payment.
1: And when you're sitting down with prospective seller and you're kind of having that ugly baby talk, right? And you're talking about the asset, maybe you bring up these things like, hey, and also, you know, what are you going to do with this cash when you sell? Or do you have any plans My favorite the question. next step, right? So, hey, uh, yeah, you know, I
2: know you must have great plans for all this cash. You must have some great investments lined up. And I kind of go at it from that perspective because the majority of the time the answer is they don't. And as soon as you start pointing that out, they go, oh, yeah, gosh, what am I going to do with all this money? Ugh, ugh. And you go, oh, well, how about, you know, so, yeah, it's like that. I always kind of go into that. Go, You must be going to Hawaii, right? You must have some huge plans for all this money I'm giving you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Now, how about from the
1: buyer's perspective, Bill? I mean, I think it's pretty obvious, you know, one of the main goals of an investor is to put little down payments sometimes. But are there any other advantages that you might see
2: from an investor perspective? There are. And now we're going into a slightly different subject. Something that I am predicting, I've mentioned this in the Creative Cash book, and something that I am predicting to occur in the future market is what I'm calling the CapEx tsunami. It's the capital expense tsunami. And what I'm talking about is aging buildings. America is in a new paradigm where if you really stop and look, and I've started to kind of do a study of this. If you really stop and look at the majority of our affordable housing, it's apartments that are what we call organic affordable housing, all right? Affordable housing is technically built, light, light tech, low-income housing, tax credits. It's built, the government gives you tax credits, you keep the rents low. When a property gets older and it becomes affordable through age, that's what we call organic affordable housing. Yeah. And there, The majority of our affordable housing in America is of the organic category, which really is a polite way of saying old as hell you know, the majority of our affordable housing in America is wholesale. And so the problem is that these buildings, again, a terrible example, but look at this property in Miami that collapsed. A lot of assets in America are really starting to reach an age of physical obsolescence. The study that I've done is to really stop and look at how many, when did our affordable housing product really start to get built? Late 50s, early 60s is when we really start to see the majority of the large pine frame construction apartments being built. Sort of prior to World War II, prior to the baby boomer era, they were still doing brownstones, a lot of brick construction, a lot of the buildings like you see in New York. We didn't see the cardinal construction and pine frame and mass build kind of things until 60s and then really getting heavy in the 70s, maybe up to the early 80s. Those properties are reaching an age of great risk. You know, you go and buy that old property and you think it's going to cash flow, but then all of a sudden all the plumbing is falling apart or the roofs all have to be replaced and there's foundation issues, God forbid. And uh, oh, and then here comes the city and here comes code enforcement and they're not asking, they're telling you're going to fix this and this and this and this. That's where creative financing is going to be of great value to the buyers. So, exactly, help us deal with these older buildings without having to go take on new debt ourselves, which is the risk. And that's what I want everybody to avoid is going and taking on risky mortgages on older, risky properties. That's a mistake. So, you know, be careful with older buildings until we can start getting some creative financing in there. That's going to be the real value for buyers going forward. And there's a lot of products, a lot of uh, apartments in America that fit the description I just gave.
1: You mentioned earlier in the conversation, the term defeasance, also known as prepayment penalty. Describe kind of the risk there and what you see and exactly what that
2: means. Yeah. So when you go and get agency debt, which is our government sponsored enterprises, which just a fancy way of saying Fannie and Freddie, right? Long story, and you can look this up, I won't bore you too much, but it's called commercial mortgage backed security or CMBS. Fannie and Freddie don't really create mortgages. They buy them. They bundle them up and then they sell them as uh, shares of a bundle on the back market, right? So you can go and buy a cut of these pile of mortgages and that's your CMBS. If you pay off a mortgage early, you're taking that mortgage out of that pool and you're shorting the end buyer of those shares. And so Fannie and Freddie say, not a problem. You can pay your mortgage off early. You just need to pay that end user over there. The money we guaranteed them because they bought a share of this loan here. So that's where the prepayment penalties come in, and that's what they're for. And so when you want to, you go get this ten-year fixed mortgage from Fannie Mae, and you pay it off in two or three years, you're going to have a lot of prepayment. There's different types of prepayment, by the way. There's yield maintenance and defeasance, and there's other ones. But point being, in layman's terms, it's a prepayment penalty. So you've got to really pay attention to your exit strategy if you went in and you said, hey, this is a fix and flip. You know, I'm going to go in and do heavy value add. We're going to get the rents up. This thing's going to be worth a whole lot more. And then I'm going to turn around and refinance and pull my money out, or I'm going to sell it in two or three years. You make the mistake of getting a 10-year fixed Fannie Mae mortgage because you thought the interest rate was really low. You're going to get clobbered when you try and sell that property. You're probably not going to make any money and or not be able to sell because of that big old prepayment penalty. And Don't think Fannie or Freddie are your friends. They will not negotiate. They will not let you out of the prepayment penalty. If that asset isn't working and the tenants aren't paying, all of a sudden it becomes distressed and you think, well, gosh, I'll just go over to Fannie Mae and get them to drop the prepayment penalty and then I can sell the property and get out of here. They'll foreclose on you before they allow you out of that prepayment. Let me be real clear on that. So that's where I think a lot of people have gotten into older buildings with long-term fixed debt. You know, they're gonna have a hard time getting out of that deal here in the next couple of years. It creates a long-term hold, five, seven years. You know, and if you own a building for five or seven years, that's plenty of time for some capital expenses to stuff's hit. gonna break in there. You're gonna have Something's to gonna break, exactly. Yeah. Oh, and now if your property was built in 1962, I guarantee you some stuff's gonna break. And if you overpaid for that old building, that's where you're gonna get in trouble. And that's where I'm saying, hey, be careful, America. The C space, the affordable housing space is very inflated right now. The prices are very inflated. The returns are very low and those buildings are getting old. That's why I wrote the book. And that's why I actually brought the book out now, because I think from today, over the next three to four years, we're going to really see the advent and the use of creative financing. So that's why you want to get it now. You want to study techniques now. They've not been that prevalent over the last five to seven years. Why? The market's been good. The market's been going up. Everybody can just sell. Going forward, I think you're going to see that shift heavily. Not Prices are not going to come down. Don't don't get me wrong. It's not going to be a price crash. It's not that.
1: So Bill, what are you doing in your own personal investing business to mitigate these risks? What do you see that you're doing differently to avoid this CapEx tsunami
2: and risk? Flight to quality. What is it? Flight to quality. We're moving up the ladder. I'm looking at B pluses and A minuses, and that's really about it. I will move back to the and let me let me back up. There's absolutely nothing wrong with older buildings. There's nothing wrong with owning C space assets. There's nothing wrong with affordable housing. The only problem is overpaying for it. If you're gonna overpay for real estate, at least overpay for something nice. Don't overpay for an old building in a bad neighborhood. That's not gonna work out for you. My favorite saying these days is hey, if you're looking at those old buildings and it's a four cap, it's not a forecap, cap, it's a foreclosure. So be careful. Don't you know you're going to <laughs> buy these old buildings at a low cap rate or a high price, we'll call it that, it's not going to be good for you. Bill, there's so much good
1: stuff that you can only condense down from your book in one podcast episode. So I mean, we can't get to everything in this episode. But for people that haven't picked up your book yet, I highly recommend it. It's called Creative Cash. What's the subtitle? A guide to Match Lease Options and
2: Seller Financing for Multifamily.
1: Gotcha. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Highly recommend it. Well, hey, let's go ahead and wrap up here. I know we're both on a time crunch. We end every episode with a lightning round, just a series of questions we fire at you. Are you up for it? Let's do it. First question is, what was your biggest hurdle getting started investing in real estate and then what'd you do to overcome that?
3: Hmm.
2: Yeah, the fear was the biggest hurdle, that fear of your first deal, that fear of it's kind of like going fishing and then you actually get something on the line and you go, "Oh my gosh, what do I do? I actually got something on the line." It was it was that fear of someone saying, "Yes." I wasn't scared of somebody saying no. Somebody scared of saying, yes, I'll do the deal. So I just had to take action. And I just had to do it. Make offers is, is probably what I would say do on a regular basis. Don't shoot out a whole bunch of lowball offers, but get in the business of making offers regularly. And that'll help you get over that nervousness. If you were like me and first deal has kind of got you a little nervous, you out there and start making some offers.
1: I love it. Bill, do you have a personal habit that contributes to your success? Oh, yeah. Big reader.
2: Two cups of coffee in the Wall Street Journal every morning. Okay. Two cups of coffee in the Wall Street Journal. I recommend it for everybody. (laughs) I'm definitely a two cups of coffee kind of person.
1: Do you have an online resource you find valuable in your Mm -hmm. own day to day life?
2: Online resource I find valuable. You know, honestly, these days I've actually been on uh, Clubhouse a lot more lately. I'm not really pitching that app particularly, but I like the app. I've been on Clubhouse a lot. And yeah, that's probably about it. I'm not a huge online person, I have someone that handles a lot of my social media for me. But yeah, Clubhouse has been good. Yeah, I can't really think of anything one particular That's good. How about a book you would recommend
1: to listeners and why? Obviously, Creative Cash, but outside of it.
2: Yeah, outside of that. Well, here, that's funny you ask it. I did not know he was going to ask that question. So these are actually my two favorite books. The Prince by Machiavelli and Sun Tzu, Art of War. They sit on my desk at all times. I strongly recommend these two books. The Prince by Machiavelli, if you didn't read it in high school. And even if you did, reread it. But reread this book, and instead of thinking about it like he's talking about a nation or a country, think of it in the terms of business. So read this and think about he's talking to a manager, not to a prince or a king. And you have a ton of information. And same thing, Sun Tzu, Art of War, exact same thing. Now, there's been a million books written on that, how to use that for business and translations, this, that, and the other. But The Prince, I think, is a little less appreciated book. Machiavelli, a tremendously unappreciated,
1: misunderstood author
3: in in history.
1: I love it. Bill, will you come to the real estate space from a unique perspective, you've got an awesome approach to it. I love the book. I love what you've done. I love learning teachings and everything. If people want to do that and continue to learn more about you, reach out to you, where's the best
2: place for them to do that? Yeah, absolutely. It depends. Number one, my email address is bill at gobroadwell.com. Broadwell Broadwell being B-R-O-A-D-W-E-L-L. If you're looking to invest with my partners and I or do business with us, go to broadwellpropertygroup.com. And we have a space up there for investors. All you have to do is log in, put in your information, and we will be in touch with you very shortly about you doing some business with in the future. And if you're looking for more information at the moment on creative financing, we certainly have the book Creative Cash, and that's on Amazon, Kindle, and Audible. And I have a website, creativeapartmentdeals.com. I have a masterclass there if you want to download a little more information. little more than you get in the book, uh, creativeapartmentdeals.com.
1: Fantastic, Bill. Hey, as we're wrapping up here, is there any parting piece of advice that you'd like to leave with the audience members? Maybe something I didn't ask you that I should have.
2: Yeah. You know, I think, all right, I'll leave everybody with this. What I'll ask you this question. I believe believe (laughs) Einstein was the one that actually made the quote, I believe. What is the definition of insanity?
1: Doing the same thing over and over again and expecting the same results. What's the definition of practice? Are you telling me practice is insane? I would say practice is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result.
2: Exactly. So practice is not insane. And I think Einstein, I believe Einstein was the one that first said that doing the same thing over and over, expecting a different role is insane. And I'm saying, no, it's not. It's the definition of how we become successful. So do not think that doing something over and over and over and expecting a different result is insane. It's not. It's business. It's how we get here. So my ultimate point here is be ready to fail, be ready to take some lumps, you know, be ready to get out there and practice and understand that it takes a while, it takes repetition, it takes failure to ultimately become successful. Don't ever let anybody tell you that practicing is insane and Einstein was wrong. So I'll leave you with that one. <laughs> I love it. Well, commercial airline pilot turned
1: real estate investor, creative seller, financing wizard himself, author of Creative Cash, Bill Ham. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. Hey, it was a lot of fun. It.